Morning, Life House. How are you guys doing? So, morning, uh, my young ones, hey? These kiddos crossing over into being adults and listening to preachers. That's hardcore. And uh, welcome to the visitors. I'm Paul. And uh, if I can figure out how to work this recorder, I will be with you in a minute. Because you know what happens. Although Ian's here today. So when Ian isn't here, the recordings go missing. But when Ian's here, you know, no problem. So ready on. I don't trust you. <laughs> All right, so we've got the backup running. All right, uh, how many parents have gone out for dropping off kiddies? Is it a significant amount? Has anyone spotted any kiddie parents going? Let's run the first video. So this is just before they get back. So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible, and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavas for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kava and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, at this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find the same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see, in any situation, how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires, and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus, and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope, and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn, to become new and different kinds of humans. 
More than once, the Apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the El Peace of glory. In both cases, this El Peace is based on a person, the risen Jesus who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The Apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. Right, so that was a cool uh, little segue from hope to what I'll be preaching on today, which is doubt. Anybody doubted before? Anyone read in the Bible anywhere, any of the apostles doubting? Eh? Give us some examples. Name two people. Three, two, one. Sheepers. That, okay, well done. So people doubt. Now, I doubt planes. <laughs> I don't like flying. I really don't like flying. In fact, Inevitably, when I fly long distances, it lands up with me phoning Gary, basically crying that my nerves are shot and I don't know what to do with myself. And that's a true story. So when these guys announce, hey, we're doing a translocal down to Durban, you know, we'll book your ticket. The moment they say those words, I'm like, can I drive? Please. It could be, and I would want to drive because me and planes, we're not friends. The last time I had Louise sitting next to me and uh, she was very kind in waffling into my ear for the whole flight there and the whole flight back, although it wasn't waffles because she's a smart cookie and it was actually great. But I need someone sitting there just going, the plane's not going to crash, the plane's not going to crash, the plane's not going to crash. And this is when the plane is flying through clear skies, no turbulence, everything's going well, right? Some of us have doubt in things that have been proven. So I want to show you this video again quickly. These are some uh, German pilots. Maybe, Rog, you can pick up on some of the technical nonsense they're talking about. They are going to fly and land a plane at something ridiculous like 3 in the morning with zero visibility. So let's just work on that for doubt. It's literally giving me anxiety watching that. <laughs> and you see, the autopilot only gets you so far. But the autopilot gets you so far. And then there's a manual part, and that's the part where our doubt kicks in. We all have these spiritual journeys where we're like, Jesus has got me. He's my autopilot. And then we come into those last 40 feet or whatever, and he goes... Okay, Boyki, I've taught you all this time. Land on the runway. Let's look at some scripture. I'd love for you to read with me. Matthew 11, 2. I'll wait for you because this is great to really get into the meat of this. We're going to live around this scripture this morning. Right. Doubt in the New Testament. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? the Messiah, 
Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever, whoever has ears, let them hear. Did John know at this point of Jesus' miracles? Was he in prison? Just blindly going, well, this is nonsense. I'm in prison here, and you're out there doing these incredible things. Could you come and rescue me? Or had he had eyewitness accounts? Were there multitude witness accounts? Was he justified in going, dude, if you can do all these incredible things, could you come and get your friend out of prison? I'm the one who heralded you in. I'm the one who carved your way into the world. Why am I in prison? Let's turn to Luke 7. 11. So Matthew and Luke have similar stories, as do most of the Gospels. And just before we hear about John in prison, in Luke we have an insight as to what Jesus was getting up to. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples, and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Now, we know this means Jesus was always moved by compassion. When he was moved by compassion, he moved in miracles. He didn't do them for fun. Jesus wept. Jesus moved in compassion, and then he performed a miracle. So he went up to the, 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 the bier, which is the coffin cart they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. And he said to the dead man in the coffin, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. That happens just before John is in prison. Well, we get the story of John being in prison, and a multitude witnessed to this. So here's John in prison. He's grown up with Jesus. He's bounced around in Elizabeth's womb at the pre-born state of acknowledging Jesus, then he ushers him in, and he stands and baptizes him, sees heaven crack open, and the Lord's voice go, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased. So he is the most qualified out of everyone on earth, and Jesus himself says, this guy is greater than anyone on earth born of a woman. And John says, dude, are you really the Messiah, or must we wait for someone else? So I don't know where your doubt levels have ever got to in life but mine have never quite got to there. 
Although it does witness to all of us that if we were John, I bet you we'd probably still have the crisis of faith. Doubt leads to life. Denial leads to death. So Gary preached that uh, blind faith is for morons and that that is the Greek word. That's just not our colloquialism or our euphemism. The word is moron. If you just believe in something because you believe in it, you believe the earth is flat, you're a moron. That's fact. I unfortunately have saved, born again, awesome Holy Spirit filled friends who are Platygians. They believe that the earth is flat. I don't know how they can believe the one and then deny all the evidence for a global earth. But it's rooted in denial. Unbelief is not the opposite of faith. Denial is the opposite of faith. So you guys might know some of my story. My dad passed away from cancer about two years ago. Five years before that, when we found out, it was a shock to my system. My dad is a Baptist minister. He's always been the most incredible role model and father and minister, and he got throat cancer. That was just going to choke the life out of him slowly and surely. That's what it does. Unfortunately, it constricts, constricts your throat, and you suffocate so he had to stop preaching, he had to start leading worship teams, he had to stop all of these things that defined his ministry. And so I thought at that point, I had faith, and I said, Dad, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're a preacher, and you're an incredible upstanding guy who looks after his family. And we're going to pray, pray and we're going to stand faithful, and we're going to beat this thing. And we've all done this. And the doctors said, I don't care who your dad is. I don't care who your God is. He has five years. In five years, he will pull up the handbrake. And of course, we started to joke about it. Dad always said he was going to pull up the handbrake. But I lived in denial all the way up to the point where he was rushed off to hospital because he'd collapsed because he couldn't breathe anymore. And they booked him in. And by the end of week one, I thought, Lord, Yes, your miracle's coming. Wait till I go back to Joburg and tell these guys what you've done for my dad. And the end of week two, he was still in an induced coma and he was on all the pipes and things. And I thought, Lord, your miracle's coming. You're making it worse so it can get better. And I believe this wholeheartedly. There was no doubt in my mind. And at the end of week two, dad died. And I stood there and I went, Lord, resurrection, yes, and I meant it and I believed it. The problem is that I'd replaced faith with denial 100%. A week later, we went to dad's funeral and my denial caused a break in my brain. I saw him drive the hearse in. Some of you might be able to relate to this, others will just think it was bananas. Either way, I saw him drive his own hearse in with him in the back. I denied my dad's death until he was gone. And what happened is a year and a half later, I snapped. And I lost it and I fell into a deep depression. I started having panic attacks because now the thing I had called faith had broken me. Denial is not faith. Faith is in things unseen. Denial is unbelief 
in things seen. The doctor says to you, here's your prognosis. Get your faith, get your prayer team, take the tablets. Jesus made physicians. He equipped them, he gave them the skills, don't live in denial. Denial pretty much became my God, actually, because if I denied it long enough and hard enough, dad wouldn't die. I don't know how I got to the point of thinking he was driving the hearse, but shame this poor gentleman looked exactly like my dad, wore the same suit, wore the same tie, had the same haircut. Not helpful. My two heroes in doubt, okay, my two prime examples. We've got Doubting Thomas. And when we bring our doubts to Jesus, they have fruit. God has no problem with doubts. And we see that, first of all, in Thomas. The disciples went to Thomas and said, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And we'd make the mistake of saying that's denial or that's unbelief. No, that's doubt because he was an investigative kind of person and he required evidence. You're telling me that Jesus is alive. This will culminate in the greatest message the world has ever seen, that the Messiah has lived, died, and risen again. I want to stick my fingers in his side. And so what does Jesus do? He has rebuked before. He has said, ye of little faith. He has said, this wicked generation will not get a sign because of your unbelief. But with doubt, and I love this, I think these guys were good at their iconography, so excuse the graphic Jesus goes, Thomas, what? And he allowed him to put his hand and his fingers into Jesus' wounds. Doubt is healthy. It is not denial. Judas had the same opportunity to choose between doubt and denial. Judas got to a point after living in the same circumstances as the other apostles that he looked at Jesus, looked at the miracles, looked at the prophecy and said, if I betray you for 30 pieces of silver, nothing will happen to me. I think he had a schism of the brain, and he went off and we know what he, what he did out in the wilderness. He, uh, he finished his story prematurely. Judas had the same opportunity, but he chose denial. And denial brings death, and doubt brings life. Then we have John. John's amazing. It's called by name with Zechariah. Zechariah is saying, can't have a kid. Elizabeth's too old. Then Elizabeth says his name is John. And they get into an argument with the friends and family saying, that's not a family name. You're not allowed to call him John. And when Zechariah releases the name John, the miracle happens and he's able to speak again. So already there's a miracle involved in his conception and in his birth. When Elizabeth meets with Mary. John leaps in his mother's womb at the mere proximity of Jesus. And yet, he doubted. That one's probably about as dated as I could find, but I'm not sure there are many images out there with a picture of two ladies' wombs open and babies having a party. So that's the best I could do. I still think it's sweet. Eh? No. Doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. We've heard this before. There comes a point where you have doubts and you admit them. And you have beliefs and you admit them. But now believe your beliefs and doubt 
your doubts. We start doubting our beliefs. We start going, ah, I'm not sure about this Jesus thing. And then he witnesses himself again and again and again. And we can cause a bit of a brain fracture. You are a whole being. Something Chris Vallotton teaches about. You are a triune being. Spirit, soul, and body. Are you looking after all three? Science has been saying this for ages. Philosophical Christianity is starting to say you need to look after your mind, your body, and your spirit. Now in Joburg, which of those three do we neglect? Everyone's kind of shy about this. We neglect our bodies. In which way? We don't rest enough. We don't exercise enough. We don't eat well. Except Justin. He's pointing at everyone else. Most of all, we don't rest enough. We don't rest enough. And we don't rest enough. D.A. Carson says you are morally obligated, Louise. I know you don't have this problem, but I thought you'd like this. Morally obligated to get the sleep you need. I think that's incredible. Listen to this. Doubt, he's got a book with 10 points on why you begin to doubt, why you become a cynical Christian, why your faith gets hammered by looking after the third component of your triune being, your body. Doubt may be fostered by sleep deprivation. If you keep burning the candle at both ends, sooner or later you will indulge in more and more mean cynicism. And the line between cynicism and doubt is a very thin one. Of course, different individuals require different numbers of hours to sleep. Moreover, some cope with a bit of tiredness better than others. Nevertheless, if you are among those who become nasty, cynical, or full of doubt when you are missing your sleep, you are morally obligated to get the sleep you need. Come on, hallelujah. Hey, like, honestly, all of this guilt, yeah, you're pointing at your dad. I'm a grump. Ange is married to a grump. If I don't get my sleep, I am rubbish for 48 hours. We are whole, complicated beings. Our physical existence is tied to our spiritual well-being, to our mental outlook, to our relationships with others, including our relationship with God. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep. Not pray all night, but sleep. And D.A. Carson is a ninja. For name-dropping's sake, he's one of the guys. We take his advice. And if you tried it, Have you ever wondered how the refreshing December period works for those of you who are lucky enough to get it? You come back in January thinking, I can do this January thing. I can do this Joburg thing. March, when's April coming? It's because of rest. It's one of our rhythms that Bron was speaking about this morning. God has rhythms. And if we don't click into those rhythms, our body is going to suffer. Our spirituality is going to suffer. Faith. And denial are those polar opposites. It takes massive mental gymnastics to actually live in denial. Like, faith is is one thing to say, I've been taught by Gary, and so my faith is in him. My trust is in him, that his teachings about the gospel are correct, and he has been taught, and they have been taught, And that's how the apostolic tradition works. The church fathers have had a hand-me-down since the first handshake with Jesus. There's a line of credibility. Faith in Gary empowers me in my faith in Jesus. Not because of him, but by him. Denial in gravity, we'll pick our metaphor this time. Gary's got one, Bruce has got one. 
You say he'll inherit the world. If you throw yourself out of plane without a chute, you will inherit the world. I think you'll make an impression on the earth. But you will. There are actually things called the laws of science. I learned this week, you get a hypothesis, which is, I think bananas are made of cheese. You try it out with the empirical method and you come to a theory. I've tried it on 10 bananas with a control banana and two sample bananas, and bananas are not made of cheese. Even then, it's only a theory because it can still be. <laughs> Somebody made a cheese banana. It can still be found that bananas are made of cheese. But once you've established a scientific theory, it becomes a law. Gravity is a law. Good luck breaking gravity. It will break you first. Throw yourself upon the rock before the rock throws itself on you. That is a law. That is a spiritual law. Throw yourself upon Jesus because if he has to throw yourself on you, it's not going to work out well. Faith is rooted in the present word of God. Okay, so unpack this a tiny bit. Remember Paul? Tottle has been teaching us that the present word of God is like a prophetic companion that walks alongside us, that guides us. If we have a prophetic word that is real and present here with me now, I have purpose, I have vision, and I know where to go. You guys know what I'm saying? You're with me. If I have no present word of God, I can rely absolutely on the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus is faithful to me whether I click into it or not. But the present word of God is a word that bears its own fruit. The present word of God is already enabled to bear fruit, to come true, to be done by God's will. John Mark Comer, who I owe most of the credit to this preach to, says, we have become a people who worship the compassions of God and not the God of compassions. So I want to break some strongholds over you guys today. If you've been worshiping God in a way where you worship Him because of His goodness, life might land up being disappointing at times. But if you are worshiping God purely because He is God, His compassions are part of the package. We will be sorely disappointed if we, and I grew up like this, I'm learning at Lifehouse, and I'm like 41 years into my Christianity now. If we worship God for the things he does, what do we do when he doesn't come and get us from prison? When dad dies of cancer? When our business goes bang? When the roof starts leaking and the geezer bursts? What do we do? Because you're the God of compassions. Where are my compassions? He's first God. First God. When we don't feel God, are we still in his will? That plane, that autopilot... Zero visibility near donkey. I'm a bit worried now. Next time we fly through clouds, I'm going to be like, I've seen what it looks like up front. This is ridiculous. How do you know another kippy's not turned off his radar and he's like, <laughs> and then, of course, because I have a bit of a morbid fascination with planes, I go and find out, this has happened. Planes have crashed in the sky because one chop turned off his transponder or something. Anyway, out of the planes. The point is, when you're not feeling God, when you're in prison, are you happy that he has given you the instrumentation to navigate your life and the autopilot and that you can't feel his felt presence has nothing to do with the fact that he is still present? He's still present. 
For those of you who haven't gone through it yet, something comes along called the dark night of the soul where you don't feel Jesus anymore. And he's gone nowhere. He's right there. But his felt presence is not quite there. And that's really, really hard. But that's the time to stick your faith in gear, put on your autopilot and go, Jesus, you said. I wonder if John, after this, because we never hear from John again, after this moment, sat in prison and went, oh, okay. He said he's the Messiah. Woo! Or if he just sank deeper and deeper into his depression. When you don't feel Jesus, he's still there. Nothing has changed. And how do we know? Because at 100 meters, that landing strip suddenly comes out of nowhere. Beauty from ashes. Started getting all poetic about this thing. It was fun to write. I want to tell you about two beautiful things that happened in the chaos of my dad dying. Just after dad started his chemo and radio, so he was, you know, radio treatment is not great. Everything gets stuck in a microwave and chemo is not great because it makes you nauseous and low energy and you're really, you're not having a good time. The Lord said to me, I'm giving your dad more time. Now, keep the two in mind. I'm living in denial that he's going to be fine forever. And in parallel, God's giving me a present word. Just hang on. I'm giving your dad more time. His work is not done. So I say to dad, I've heard from the Lord. He says, just don't back off. Do what you can. Your ministry is not done. Just do whatever you can, do it. And he says, come through to Whitbank. Malachleni, and come to my congregation. I'd like you to lead them in praying for me. Let's take this to the bank. So I go through and I say to this congregation of hardcore Baptists, any Baptists in the room? It's okay. I've been through all the denominations. You can put your hand up. The Baptists are not crazy about the move of the Holy Spirit. That's an understatement. Holy Spirit is not really welcome in a solidly traditional Baptist upbringing. So I go through to this church of strangers and very conservative minors, and I say, the Lord's given me a word. And they're really like, who are you, you know? And I say, my dad is getting extended time. And we're going to pray for him now. And you're going to witness the extended time that is coming. And so we prayed. And of course, I was operating out of denial. But I still had the present word. And so my dad slowly recovered and recovered and started preaching again and started leading worship again and started leading men's ministry out at Emmaus in Pretoria and things started coming around again. That was birthed on the present word of God, not on my denial, but I was still looking at my denial. Then near the end, beautiful but tragic that I missed it. We were out at the Kingdom Come conference, driving through to Whitbank and Ange says to me, Paulie, I've just seen a picture of your dad. Dad was already under. He was on, in this induced coma, and I didn't know. He was pulling up the handbrake. And she said, I see Jesus at the foot of Dad's bed and angels around him. And, of course, I'm going to cook this a little, but the heart is there. And Jesus kind of looked at me and went, it's okay, Ange. We've got him. And I went, awesome, miracle time, denial, <clears throat> Jesus, in his mercy and grace, literally going, dude, like the time is up. I'm letting you know your dad is saved and he is coming to sit with me in heaven, but you should probably get your affairs in order. So I had two present words of God 
in my denial. Are you spending time with God daily, daily office, finding out what is the denial and what is the present word of God? Because the two don't correlate. The denial will always have something in the present word of God that's going, listen, dude, I've sent Jesus and angels to your dad's bed to let you know it's time. And if you don't acknowledge this, you're going to crack your brain and you're going to have a really rough time. And I held on to my denial because I'm a very much a number five and I know everything. In fact, I know more than the Lord. And this is going to go my way because I have scripture to back that if I just name it and claim it and say it till I see it, preach it, brother, then uh, my dad will be fine. Justin has had a present word for Quinton, but not a present word for other things. Gary's had a present word. Angie's had a present word. I'll tell you next time about where our house is at the moment. You know our house story? Visitors, it's an incredible house story, so you've got to come back because it'll cook your brain. I have a present word for my house that says no matter what the lawyer says, no matter what town council says, no matter what the tax man says at this point, the Lord will honor his present word. Not my denial. I don't get to go, Lord, you said, and therefore. I don't get to say that. But I have a present word from God. Let's go back to these scriptures. Because now we're going to land with poor old John. So John this whole time has been listening to my preach and he's still in prison going, thanks dude, I know this. I knew the guy. He's told me he's the Messiah. He's just raised a dude from the dead. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the Messiah or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. You know those funny little lines at the end of, of Scripture where you're like, Blessed are the ones who do not stumble on account of me. Well, that's weird. That's a bit non sequitur because what does that have to do with anything? Jesus and John both knew Scripture off by heart. So in that language, John knew the subtext of what Jesus was saying. Let's just go to the Scriptures that Jesus is quoting. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord, and the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish, the mockers will disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. That's part of the scripture that Jesus is quoting in Isaiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, this is Isaiah speaking, but... It's a prophecy about Jesus because the Lord has anointed me. It's the term for Messiah. Stick with me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon the Messiah to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent the Messiah to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners. So here's Jesus quoting Isaiah to John in prison, right? Look at the parts that Jesus leaves out. Knowing the Bible, back to front, quoting Isaiah to John, what does he leave out? He leaves out to proclaim the freedom for the captives and to release from darkness for the prisoners. And Jesus is implying 
implicitly, implying is a soft word, implicitly Jesus is saying, I love you, but I'm not coming for you. Honestly, this is the God of compassion. This is the Messiah. And by quoting scripture and omitting those lines intentionally, he's saying to John, you are where you are. I am where I am. You've heard the witness. I am who I say I am. I love you, but I'm not coming for you. Beloved, it is best for you that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Holy Spirit, your advocate, your helper, will not come. But if I leave now, I promise I will send him. I promise I will return for you. Now, did John hold that in his heart in prison? Have I now, two years later, come back round, full circle, back into the rhythm that Bron was talking about, where I stand here and go, my denial was stupid. Lord, I repent, and I put that on the altar. I pick up my faith again. You are who you say you are. And I am who you say I am, not who I say I am. And my dad was who you said he was, not who I said he was. And Jesus, thank you for your grace to show me, though I was doff, at the appropriate time, Boyki, I love your dad so much, I'm giving you an explicit vision that it's time to come home. And now that comforts me as I recalibrate my faith and I turn back to the healthy doubt and I go, okay, Lord, I don't understand. Because in this modern context, we all believe we're going to live forever. We really do. Profoundly, in our deepest heart, we believe we're going to live 250 years because we cannot perceive that one day something's going to happen or we're just not going to wake up. We can't perceive that. We can't conceive of that. But faith is not denial, guys. If I can break one thing over you today, in the name of Jesus, no more denial. If you're in a difficult place, you've got a sore in your body that's been bleeding for months, stop it. Go to a doctor. Pray for it. Go bananas, but please. You're in financial trouble. Stop it. You can pray and you can be filled with all of the denial you want, or you can be filled with faith. Go and see a financial consultant and say, Lord, who should I speak to? Who can help me? I learned this beautiful thing that illustrates what I'm saying now. Did you know that sunflowers track the sun? Okay, most of us know that. The sun comes up and the sunflowers go from this limp, horrid, standard 10 at Whitbank High School state, and they go to this Pridwin collegiate whatever we are here to learn. And they... Did you know that when sunflowers, a field of sunflowers, cannot track the sun because it's overcast? They've been known to turn and face each other. Come on! Where is my faith when I'm like, I can't feel God. I'm Depro, and he dropped my dad, so... I turn to Gary, and I go... Good grief, look what he's doing in Gary's life. I turn to Nat's and I say, look what he's doing in Nat's life. We are those sunflowers. When we are in that dark night of the soul or just a slump, and we can't track with Jesus by our doing or by his grace, we turn to each other. And that's why we need community. That sunflower out there, Stoxilalian in the field, which is the original Greek for alone in the field, 
When he can't track the sun, that's it. That's his ministry. That's his perspective on life. That's where his face is. He's just looking at the ground. He is a depro sunflower. So, beloved, it is best for you. It was best for my dad. It was best for John not to spend time removing him from prison. It was best that he go away. For if he did not go away, the Holy Spirit, our advocate and helper, would not come. But that he left, he promised to return for you. Do you believe Jesus? I freaking love this picture. When I found it, I was like, oh, check all this clip art and what, what, what. And just like, no, no, that's a world famous painting. Some guy, and Anita as well. She's like, oh, yeah, that's shmish, 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 man. This piece, oh, I blinked. I thought I spelled believe wrong. You know when you get to the end of your preaching, you're like, oh, that one thing. This piece is a depiction of us running into Jesus' arms, kindred, as a friend. Like Jesus just going, well done, dude, well done. I'm sorry it was rough down there, but come with me. I got your back. And it's called homecoming. The instruction from the seed of doubt, and we were discussing this morning at the prayer meeting, so why did God decide that John had to stay in prison? What if, in hindsight, and I feel a bit like Jack Sparrow now, what if, in hindsight, that's for you, Grey P, okay, I'm going to kill, the, kill all JP's equipment. What if, in hindsight, John, having hacked off Herod, I'm, I'm actually done, but this is cool trivia. It shows how much I've invested in studying this thing. John hacked off Herod in two ways. Number one, he stood in the bush and went, under Roman occupation, Herod was king. Uh, you're not the king. King's coming. Kingdom's coming. This kingdom is rubbish. It's going to fall away. King's coming. Herod? Number two, he challenged Herod and caught him out sleeping with his sister-in-law. That's how he landed up in prison. He was sleeping with his sister-in-law. And Herod was like, hi, Abel. Put him in prison. And he stayed there until, unfortunately, he met his demise and he was beheaded. So if Jesus always had an eternal plan, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, always had an eternal plan to bring fruit out of John's doubt that today I could tell you that it's okay, then John has made the ultimate and great sacrifice. Because it really comforts me to know that somebody who was the closest and most influential, the herald of Jesus, had his doubts.